Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. Uh, I am continuing our series in Hebrews, uh, where, as followers of Jesus, we're really stepping into this extraordinary book that describes for us the work that Jesus has done for us uh, by bringing us into relationship with God. Jesus has made it possible for us to be called children of God. He's made it possible for us to be declared righteous by God. And what we've been studying in the book of Hebrews up to this point has really unpacked how Jesus has done that in a greater way than the Old Testament law. And in fact, his action has replaced what was done in the Old Testament and brought in this new covenant, this new covenant which shows God's love, that demonstrates God's love and invites us into God's love. And most recently, Jesus has been described in the book of Hebrews as the great high priest. So where the priests in the Old Testament were themselves full of sin and brought a sacrifice uh, to bring cleansing to all the people, Jesus, who in the same way was weak as us, but was without sin, brings in, made himself the one perfect sacrifice for us to be in relationship with. Uh, with God. As Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Gentle and Lowly, the various high priests through Israel's histories were sinfully weak. Jesus, the high priest, was sinlessly weak. And it's in that place that he's able to make this extravagant exchange that we receive when Laurie led us in confession. And then we receive that grace of God that we can be in right standing with God. We can be loved by God, known by him. And then we're sent out into the world to share his goodness with those around us. So that is where we've got to in Hebrews. And uh, today uh, we have a digression from the writer. And I'm reading from uh, chapter 5, verse 11. And in this digression, the writer, so it's a kind of hold on to your hats type of digression, okay? Because the writer expresses his frustrations with the people. He then gives a very, very strong warning. And then thankfully, he then expresses his love for the people. So here we go. I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 11. We have much to say about this, and that's all about Jesus as high priest. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened 
who have tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there we are. He starts with this frustration, the frustration he has with the, the people that he's writing to. It, these are people that he's not able to visit, but he knows really, really well. And he says, how can he go on to explain more about Jesus' work, the deeper reality of what Jesus has done, when his readers are showing absolutely no desire to learn or to mature? You know, I know people in our church here who I would absolutely describe as lifelong learners. They will come to me and say, oh, Anne, I've been looking at this, or I've been listening to this podcast, or I've been to this lecture, and this is how I'm taking it on, and I'm learning, putting it into practice in my life. Of people who come to me and say, I've just been reading the Bible this morning, and this is what I think God's saying to me, and this is how I want to put it into practice. And that is what this writer is trying to do with these readers uh, these, the people that he's writing to, is say, don't just stop with what you know. Keep learning, keep reading the Bible, and take what is in the Bible and put it into practice in your own lives. That's how you'll grow to a place of maturity. Instead of being like an infant, just drinking milk, you start to eat solid food. You start to develop further, and you mature. And the hallmark of the maturity is uh, verse 14 of chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. I love the fact that what the writer is drawing out here is that it's learning and experience. It's putting into practice what it is that you've learned from the Bible and then once you put it into practice, learning again, taking it back into the Bible, hearing what God's saying, allowing the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to grow into maturity. At the end of the uh, passage that I read, he then goes on to talk about you imitate those people of faith. And that's where we head next in the book of Hebrews. He starts bringing more examples of people of faith. Think around the people that you know. 
that you think, oh yeah, those are people are great examples of faith where they want to carry on learning. Go and have a conversation with them saying, how do you, how do, you do that? And I know that what you'll find is that they're passionate about reading the Bible, learning more about God, and then putting it into practice in their lives. So that first part of the passage makes me think, okay, how's maturing going on for me? Am I stepping into that? Or am I just sitting back and drinking milk? Am I wanting to chew on the word of God and learn from it? The frustration continues at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, let us move on beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. It's really important, I think, that what he's saying, that we don't hear then in the moving forward that it's like letting go of all those foundations or, right, we've done with those now, now we're going into something else. No, it's building on the foundations of faith. And those foundations that he uh, enumerates in verses 2 and 3 are described in couplets. So we have here foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith of God. Repent and believe. Instructions about cleansing rites which is also can be translated as baptisms, and the laying on of hands, that's the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And those couplets um, are, are mirrors of um, cultural understanding that in the Jewish faith, where these, the listeners, the readers of this, are primarily disciples who've come to faith from Judaism, these couplets occur a lot in the Jewish faith. And that's the predominant culture that these disciples had come from. So the writer is saying, well, let's not, let's not lay these foundations again. So that kind of provoked a question for me. What's happened to these followers? Was it that the culture had taken over from a radical understanding that came to them when they first believed? You know, had they stepped into a belief in Jesus with all of these elements, but then the culture of Judaism had kind of started to win out over what they had already believed. And I suppose that provokes a question for us, doesn't it? Is there anything in our culture that has taken over from what we have first believed? You know, if I look around over the last 18 months, I think... You know, the whole thing that we've had to go through with regards to isolation, being in households on our own, has played, and played into and magnified that lean that we have nowadays of independence over community. The I being more important than the we. And I think we have to kind of fight quite hard now, coming out of pandemic, as we meet together, as we form community together, that independence, the reliance on our, just on one person or in one household, has to change. We have to move further into community, what it means to be community together as a church, as a church body. Because Christ died for us together. 
Yes, there's a personal application to faith that's really important, but it's in community that it is worked out. So that's the, the first aspect of this passage, the frustration that he's expressing with his readers to grow into full maturity. And then he goes on in verses 4 to 8 with this really, really serious warning. He describes people to who, to all appearances, have become Christians. They've been enlightened. The lights have gone in on, the darkness has gone, they've recognized the truth about God in Jesus. They've tasted the heavenly gift. There's a tangible experience of a new kind of life and love which, reach, which has reached out and embraced them and they've stepped into this. And they've shared in the Holy Spirit that personal way of speaking about how the one God comes to us as individuals and as a community, revealing truth, assuring us of love, and awakening hope. It's the Holy Spirit who brings faith alive. And it's extraordinary to be part of that. And these people have tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the coming age. Life becoming alive with the Word and the Spirit. But the warning to these people is that it is impossible that if they fall away, having gone through all of that, to be brought back. It's like they're crucifying Christ all over again. So who is the writer talking about? Well, I think it's, it's really clear from the passage that this is not just simply the regular followers of Jesus. All of us have weaknesses. All of us uh, uh, sin, mess up our lives, make mistakes. All of us have suffering in our lives that seems too big to bear. And what we need to do with those things in our lives, those mess-ups, those sins, those areas of suffering where we think, oh, it's just all too much, and in fact, it can be all too much, is that it's important that we take a step forward to Christ, that we come to Christ. That's the trajectory of faith. These people have taken an active step to walk away from Christ. They're, they're, they're turning their back on the cross, and they're walking away from Christ, and they have walked away from Christ. And more than that... It's clear that it's a, in a public way, they're shouting out against what Jesus has done. It's called apostasy. These are apostates. Apostasy is an act of refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith. So are these people, people who receive the gift, but they didn't really believe are they acting without humbly acknowledging that Jesus is Lord? Are they hypothetical examples that the writer's bringing in? Well, that one I can't go with. I read that in one of the commentators. They can't be hypothetical examples because he's already referred in chapter 4 to the people of Israel rebelling in the desert and not entering into the promise of God. No, these are people who are bringing fierce opposition to Christ and his gospel, public rebellion against Christian things, and determination to bring Christ's work to an end, as the commentator Raymond Brown says. And the evidence of their lives is brought out in the example of the land in verses 7 and 8. 
Both lands receive the rain. One produces a crop, the, others, the other land thorns and thistles. Now, the fact that you're all here this morning tells me that you're the people who are coming to Christ. You're not apostates. That's good news, folks. Okay. <laughs> you're people who are coming to Christ. And in our coming to Christ, we need to bring those mess-ups to him. And we find from him complete forgiveness. Dane Ortland says in his book, again, Gentle and Lowly, what elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. In a moment, we're going to gather around the table. We're going to have communion together. And I'm going to give us an opportunity just to, from this word, just bring anything that God's brought to our mind where we need to be saying, oh, Lord, I'm really sorry about that. And we'll find that Jesus gives us forgiveness. He's done that once for all, for all humanity, and he does that in the regularity of our walk with him. And where the writer ends is with this expression of love. In verse 9, he says, even though we speak with this dear friends, and the word there is beloved. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. He's basically saying to them, they're not apostates. They're people who have stepped into the reality of what we read about at the end of chapter 4. Jesus, as the great high priest, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. These people have approached the throne of grace. They've received mercy. And from that place, they've responded with work and love dedicated to God as they've stepped out and helped people around them. The evidence of their lives shows the grace that they've received. They're definitely people who've stepped out in faith and then put it into practice. And keep going, says the writer. Don't be lazy. Show that same diligence to the very end. Imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. It's so powerful to step into learning and take on further what it is Jesus has done. And I wanted to share with you, just as I close this talk, one aspect that has really struck me as we've considered Jesus' preeminence as what he's done as our high priest. And it comes from that verse I've just read, chapter 4, verse 14. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Whenever I've read that verse in the past, I've always focused on the fa fact that Jesus didn't sin, and I thought, wow, that is amazing. 
He was the son of God. He was fully human. He did not sin. The aspect that is really striking me more and more as we have studied this book of Hebrews is that Jesus went through weakness himself. He had no sin, but he did experience everything else that it means to live as a real human being in this fallen world. The weakness of suffering, temptation, and every other kind of human limitation. As we read in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 14 to 18. So this book of Hebrews is saying you have a God, you have a Savior who's experienced whatever you are experiencing. Hmm. You have a saviour who's experienced whatever you are experiencing. And it is both the death and the resurrection of Jesus that saves us. So God works through weakness and suffering to bring in the powers of the coming age, which are both available for us now and in the fullness of time when Jesus returns the new creation which God will one day accomplish what he's already begun in Jesus Jesus co-suffers with us he's in solidarity with us he stands right beside us as we mourn, as we grieve as we Uh, pray for friends to be healed as we pray for people to come into relationship with God. Jesus is standing beside us. He's absolutely in solidarity with us. And he brings in the powers of the new age that we can see happen in the world around us. Pray for, experience ourselves, And when we're not experiencing those, know that he is suffering with us. He's experienced as a human what it is to be human. And as the son of God, he brings in God's rule and reign. So what does that that mean? You know, as I kind of land this, you know, I'm saying I'm learning that Jesus stands with us in weakness. So what does that mean for me? What does that mean for us as a church? as a community. Well, it means that when I am tempted, when I am conscious of the things that I've messed up, I can come to, and when I'm suffering, when I'm, or when I'm standing alongside somebody who's suffering, I can bring in Jesus who knows exactly what that means. We can weep with those who weep, And we can rejoice with those who rejoice. Because Jesus stands with us in the suffering and has brought in the coming age. I'm just going to give us a moment now to reflect and just think what one thing, one aspect of what I've shared has struck you this morning.